Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cover. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, is privacy coming to an end? And if so, what does that mean exactly? So we're going to define two types of privacy to start. There's privacy in the strong sense of it. Say I write something down in a diary and put it in a drawer. I don't expect that someone's going to break into my house, open the drawer, and read the diary. I think everyone would agree that's a clear violation of my privacy. But then there's this other softer form of privacy, which you could call privacy of anonymity. Right, or like de facto privacy. Right, which is sort of privacy that arises when you have you know, a dense, uh, highly populated environment where you're not expected to know everybody. So an example of that might be, you know, if I go out to a bar and I end up, you know, dancing on a table and drunk or something, I may not want the people I work with to see that. And in a big city, I have a reasonable expectation that they need not find out about that because the people in the bar and the people at my work are not the same and they're probably not going to be sharing information perfectly. So I can, I can go out and feel like that is not going to be shared. So it's, it's a form of privacy even though it's happening in a very public space. Right, and both of those types of privacy are being threatened now by changes in technology, but really I think uh, the, the biggest threat comes to that second type of privacy. For example, improved face recognition. Right, so if somebody takes uh, a photo of you, uh, that photo traditionally wouldn't necessarily be linked back to you very easily, but face recognition... Can make that automatic. Exactly. So it doesn't even have to be your friend who takes a picture of you. Uh, it could be like an anonymous surveillance camera and facial recognition algorithm could finger you and make you searchable um, almost instantaneously. That technology all basically exists and it's slowly coming, uh, or rather it's rapidly coming online. Right. So going back to the bar analogy, if you're in that bar, people that you may not even know who may just happen to capture you even in the background of a photo because your face is a marker for who you are that increasingly can be automatically recognized, that may be enough to interconnect that photo in a way that then exposes you to people you don't right. want to be that exposed to. that might link to. you to your name, for example, or your social media profile. The GPS chips in, in people's cell phones in the bar, in your cell phone, and other people who are taking those photos will give away your physical location to anyone who's looking for it. Date and time as well. Uh, just the fact that there are smaller and more pervasive cameras, that everybody's cell phone has them, that uh, if you are uh, you know, trying to install security for, you know, intentionally, it's easier than ever to do that. We're embedding computers in all kinds of devices as small as glasses or, you know, coming soon, we're probably going to have contacts that have computers in them and we'll be able to uh, take pictures and tag people and upload right. from those devices. And I think there's this sort of concept of a sort of always-on situation where right now, yeah. uh, if I want to take a photo to, say, capture my friend doing something embarrassing, I have to get the camera out and set that up, and perhaps the moment's already gone. Right. Well, and this is like a an, an area of constant improvement. The manufacturers are always trying to get it like easier for you to get at your camera, but nothing's easier than just the camera always being on because it's mounted on your head. And all you have to do is say, oh, save that or mark that. Or, uh, you know, maybe you don't even have to do that. The computer will go through. It'll figure out which moments were important. And, and eventually if you had enough hard drive space, right? Mm -hmm. Like literally everything that you're looking at, if you had, say, uh, in enhanced glasses that were recording what you saw, could be continuously dumped into the cloud. 
Right. So just to check back in with the bar story now, now it's a little bit in the future and everybody in that bar is wearing uh, augmented reality glasses that have a camera mounted on them. They're recording every second of every day from their own personal POV. Plus there's surveillance all over the bar. All of that stuff is getting saved because why not? It's all going up to a huge drive in the cloud somewhere. And then AI software uh, in the cloud is face recognizing, GPS positioning, date and time stamping, and linking it all back to the profiles of everybody in that bar. So all of a sudden, all that privacy of anonymity that we would have expected, all that private table dancing that maybe shows up you know, on Instagram among your friends, but doesn't get into the wider world of, say, your work, is searchable to anyone who knows who you are and wants to go look for you. And I think it's worth talking here about, you know, well, wouldn't just people opt out of this? Like, why would everybody in the bar necessarily want to have this always-on system? And I think there would be really strong incentives to have a uh, searchable, well-recorded uh, record of everything that you do. I think a lot of people will want that. A lot of people are natural exhibitionists and will and will intentionally share that stuff, I think. And uh, it doesn't matter if everyone in the bar is like that. You only need a few people because in one walk across the room of a bar, just scanning everything on your way to the bathroom, those one or two people that choose to engage in this sort of like always recording system will just capture everybody. Yeah. I, I think another technology that enters into this is just better search and data analysis in general for combing through all of this stuff. Let's take another situation that you might find yourself in. Again, where say maybe you call in sick because you don't feel like going to work that particular day. And traditionally, your boss really wouldn't interrogate you about that. Um, he'd probably just look the other way. And maybe you go to the beach or something. Go to the beach, and in all the ways that we just described, you get you know recorded and uploaded by somebody else. Now, if your boss, say, doesn't believe your story, right, he has the potential to maybe search, not even necessarily using your name. He might be able to search using a an a image of your face, possibly, as right. a, as a source. Or there may be very sophisticated ways for saying, uh, combing through all this data and finding out where a particular person was at a particular time. So if somebody has the incentive to spy on you, they're going to have great tools at their disposal. They're still going to have to choose to do that. But if they do choose so, they may be successful with a relatively low amount of work. Whereas traditionally, if you want to surveil someone, I mean, that's a big undertaking, right? All the things that are happening, say, in a big city, which are just impossible for a human being to monitor on their own can easily be monitored by this giant computer system that's got all these streams of data coming in. So it, it, it really just automates that whole process. All, all you need is the desire and you can uh, find things in this giant pile of, that normally would be hidden by the giantness of the pile. Right. Yeah. And I, I think the, f- the final thing, a uh, trend that I think is threatening all forms of privacy, but particularly the privacy of anonymity, is the idea that you can actually tell quite a lot potentially about what's actually going on in a person's mind just by external cues. So for example, eye, small changes in eye movements and pupil dilations and uh, other types of uh, right. measurable Blood body flow, behaviors. Things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the eyes can, you know, can be picked up on potentially from very far away. Just like, where, what are you looking at, right? So it may be possible to, say, determine that you have a crush on somebody simply by the way you're looking at them and to 
basically decipher that almost automatically. Right, and think about how much utility there'd be to like a personal crush finder app that uh, you enable life logging, it records everyone, uh, whoever looks at you, and it automatically anal analyzes their eye movements and just reports to you any potential crushes. Right. right. This, is, this has so much utility that you can see somebody opting into a life logging system in order to get that utility, even though part of the trade-off there is that they are recording their entire life, thereby cutting into their, their own and a whole lot of other right. people's privacy. And a few people make that sort of decision, and you're in that place where you know, everyone's basically been mapped. Yeah, that I think, you know, plays into just the general principle that these trends are so likely to advance because there's such strong reasons to want this stuff. Um, we yeah. haven't even talked yet about uh, safety, but, you know, just having this type of surveillance everywhere potentially makes most forms of crime practically impossible, which is, you know, a, a great benefit to society. I mean, the idea that, you know, you would say, try to rob a place at gunpoint, say, when there's this many cameras everywhere, just becomes absurd. Right. Um, when there's just no chance of you not being uh, seen and probably fingered, even with, say, a mask on, we might be able to identify you via just your eyes or just your heat signature or just something else that you can't easily mask. Potentially, if there's enough cameras everywhere, we might be able to reconstruct your route uh, away from the crime scene back to wherever you end up. Right, as well easily. as your route to the crime scene. Right. Uh, both of those things should be able to be reconstructed just from the fact that the crime occurred. There are definitely benefits to a, a society where this kind of privacy has gone away. All these things combined make it seem like the, the traditional privacy of anonymity that we've gotten used to, uh, in, particularly in big cities, really seems like it has to go away. I mean, people are going to want to keep it, and there may be businesses that cater to that. There may be special bars that are blackout areas where no cell phones or recording is allowed, for example, um, because people may desire that. Right. But it's, it's, it's hard to imagine how that's even going to be possible. Definitely, there can be no signal in and out for real time, but uh, preventing people from surreptitiously recording is going to be increasingly difficult. Right. So let's talk more about the, the stronger form of privacy, the kind where I gave the example earlier of someone actually, you know, breaking into my, my personal files and, say, reading my diary. Now, that privacy is going to be certainly easier to protect. You know, if you are on your own property and you are, you know, diligent, you should be able to keep certain things private if no one is there to witness it um, and you have control of the space that you're in. But a lot of that breaks down on the network, in the online area, Right. Well, and as, as more and more parts of our lives are online, those parts of our lives, I think, are more like this de facto privacy. They're more like public spaces. They're more like public spaces. Because the online is kind of a, it's a weird nether region between public and private. Right, where you can, you can have uh, some privacy recreated in that space, but it's always somewhat tenuous. And it really does come down to how much interest people have in your business. Usually, to the extent that you have privacy online, it's the extent to which you're obscure. And how much you want to inconvenience yourself, right? I mean, I think... Well, that's true. That's true. I mean, true. You, can, yeah. you can use uh, really, you know, closed systems and aggressive cryptography and keep uh, important files offline. But then, you know, that means probably opting out of a lot of useful services. Right. And or just spending more time and research on actually preserving your privacy. 
Right. Yeah. You can commit to a, a difficult to implement privacy regime and you'll probably succeed, but it's, it's, it's challenging and it, and it comes with trade-offs. So people are increasingly, I know I'm doing this increasingly uh, choosing to put a lot of things online that are sort of semi sensitive, not the most sensitive information that you maybe have, but uh, what's an example of that? Well, things like your email, Right. right. Okay. Like, so I, I yeah. went fully online with my email actually not too long ago. I was sort of late on that bandwagon because I liked having local control very much. And then at a certain point, the economic benefits of being able to search my entire email uh, history on every machine I have, including my phone, just got too great. And I switched over. But now I've exposed myself to a situation where I, I know full well the NSA and Google are reading my mail and trying to decide if I'm either a terrorist or somebody who wants to buy shoes and, and taking appropriate action uh, right. on their on their conclusion. And, um, you know, that is what it is. It's a trade-off that I feel like I'm making for the really great ability to, to have all my data. Uh, yeah, again, it's so convenient. I mean, again, there's so many incentives to give up our privacy because the benefits are so large in so many cases. And and what you're talking about is one of those. I mean, right. So that's just one example. There's, there's tons of them that things that I used to do locally on my computer because I liked having control over them. I'm now putting up online and, and people draw that line in different places, of course. And I would say that, you know, obviously when you're online, you're sort of potentially public, people can listen in, but even if you're completely offline, even if you're in your home, and let's say the sensitive information that you're trying to keep private uh, only exists, say, in traditional writing and is not online at all, or if you have things well encrypted, say, I think further into the future, but not probably too far into the future, there's a potential for, say, you know, very small drones, possibly, you know, say, imagine the size of an insect Mm -hmm. that contain a camera uh, that could be piloted by somebody who wanted to spy on you, that could you know, literally invade your residence without you knowing it. I think, you know, that's not too far-fetched of a technology. It's certainly something that I don't believe will exist incredibly soon, but... Right. Well, and I think at first that'll be the kind of thing where it's also limited by someone's interest. If if a powerful government or corporation wants information you have, chances are they're going to be able to get it. Further in the future, you might imagine these tiny surveillance drones literally just suffusing the the world. And right. really just like sort of flying around everywhere reporting uh, information to whomever wants it. Uh, well, in between those know, two phases, like a tech savvy very far in the future. person might be able to like build one from like a kit off the internet or something too. There's like a middle ground where it's like, like it goes from like only governments can do this to right. a few like tech savvy people with who are interested in pulling this off can do it too. There's just all of a sudden uh, surveillance drones everywhere, right? Yeah, and I think the other thing you can um, that can happen that'll happen before any of those things, but that's along those lines, is that so when you're in your own home and you're going about your business, you of course will have complete control. You can turn off your life logger. You can uh, not broadcast your webcam. You can not put your files online. You can do things to keep your privacy if you want it, but uh, because we're going to be in a world where where it's possible to do those things, I believe the cultural norms are going to shift and people are going to be in the habit of just leaving their life logger on all the time, which means even when you're writing in your diary, you're recording what you're writing and somebody who wants to go search through and watch the video can find it. Well, and I think that's, you know, if we start talking about responses to this, 
One response that a person can have to these trends is to say, kind of abandon the idea of privacy. And certainly, you know, there's certain exhibitionist people that do that already, and that's what you're talking about. Right, well, and I think to a certain extent, that's the answer that culture is sort of choosing. Um, I think it's even choosing it now. I think you see the beginnings of this in our uh, social media habits. And I think as that becomes the cultural response, it becomes, it's like, okay, yeah, you can go home and you can turn off your life logger when you want to be private, but it's going to like look weird to people. It's going to ha- carry a social cost, I think. It's like, he's, why is he going dark right now? Right. What is he up to? What's he up to? And it might look suspicious. I mean, again, like, let's say you have uh, a spouse or someone that's interested. If you suddenly go dark for, or let's say you're a kid and you go dark and your parents see that, um, that's going to arouse perhaps more suspicion um, than if you just did whatever it was you were doing. Right. You might find yourself with more de facto privacy, I think ironically, if you just go do what you were doing and uh, hope that nobody was paying attention because they were too absorbed in other things. If you go dark, chances are that sets off a flag. Right. The parental control software says to your parents, oh, you should right. see where he comes back online. <laughs> Although just kind of hoping that nobody notices we t- I mean, we talked about the fact that people will be able to search really well through all this data if they want to, but I think we didn't talk about like sort of the equivalent of, of Google alerts, right? So you could set up essentially an automatic alert for every time your name is mentioned so that, you know, when your friends talk about you behind your back at a restaurant someday, you audit, like you would never think to search for that, but if you have an automatic alert set up, you might instantaneously be informed of that simply because you've instructed, you know, your assistant software that you want to know when your name is mentioned. Right. Um, And I feel like that seems like if that capability existed, almost everybody would want to do that. I think many people already do that just uh, through the Google alert system. And if it was searching a wider database that included people's speech, I mean, who wouldn't want to know when they were mentioned (laughs) and what was said? So, but anyways, uh, I mean, we're talking about society adapting in, you know, maybe eventually to where they're kind of accepting less privacy. And I think that we are seeing that, although a lot of people are really bothered by this, right? I mean, certainly the cultural discourse is like that it's a real negative thing that we're experiencing so much privacy loss. Although I do think if you look at people's actions and not what they write in opinion pieces in magazines, that... They're adopting this stuff pretty enthusiastically. And that I think it's, to a certain extent, just the style of opinion pieces in magazines right. that they're supposed to be nostalgic for the things we've lost. But no, I think definitely there's a lot of hand-wringing about w- what the negative side of this is. And we should talk about that because there's genuine negative sides to this. Right. Sure. We should talk about what are, I mean, if we're losing privacy, what does that mean? Is privacy something that we fundamentally need or want in society? You know, on a personal level, I enjoy this kind of privacy of anonymity, and I think a lot of people do, but is there an even more serious side to this? Um, And I think people have suggested that there is. I think... Sure. I mean, particularly when it comes to government surveillance, um, this has a lot of people concerned that it's, uh, you know, a very fundamental violation of what should be a personal right to privacy. You know, I've heard it said that, you know, this is sort of a slippery slope, uh, that if the government has sort of this much latitude with surveillance. I I guess the assumption is that it might eventually lead to some sort of Orwellian nightmare, or at least take us slowly down the road to some sort of tyranny. But in most cases, I feel like the surveillance is not to blame. So if government uses spying to, for say, political means, right, to say, like, 
win an election or subvert its opposing party. Mm-hmm. I think we can all agree that that's a abuse of surveillance technology. But is it really the surveillance that's the problem or is it the ill use of the surveillance? And I would argue it's much more the latter. If your government is planning to be tyrannical and to break the rules anyways, then surveillance is certainly only going to help it do that. Right. It's a tool for government, but government can be doing good or bad with that tool, basically. Sure. Uh, I think so. I think the surveillance itself is maybe perhaps a little bit more neutral, at least in in my mind. Although, again, I think a lot of people feel that privacy really is a fundamental right that needs to be defended in a democracy. Right. Governments are sort of by their nature, these power-hungry beasts that try to control and punish dissidents and that the de facto privacy that uh, that we used to have in the world, you know, just protected people from it that. It slowed down that process of of government potentially overreaching. It yeah, it it, prote- it, it uh, offered a check against government overreach, and that that particular check is you know is going away is is actually something I agree with. I think there's a lot of other ways to check against government malfeasance, though, uh, including more openness from government, which is another you know another basically less privacy for government. Right, which is the flip um, side of this. Which is the flip side of the same argument. And to me, that's the most sensible way to combat tyranny in a world where technology is decreasing de facto privacy, is to also decrease the de facto privacy under which government operates. You know, there's a million examples of that happening uh, from Snowden and Manning's leaks to, uh, you know, voluntary things that the government's doing to put information right. online, et cetera, et cetera. Right. The Snowden situation is indicative of both trends at the same time. It's indicative of the fact that we as citizens have less privacy from our government. Yeah. It's indicative of the fact that government really can't keep things secret uh, very well itself. So right. uh, everybody's essentially seems to be losing privacy together. Now, obviously, the government probably still has an advantage. It's asymmetrical uh, in favor of the government as far as we can tell. Yeah. But it does seem like the path of if we're trying to keep government from overreaching too much, it seems like the path of least resistance might be to push for transparency across the board where everyone is spying on everybody else, as opposed to trying to take things back to sort of an earlier Right, time. an earlier technological w- moment when yeah. there was more de facto privacy because it was hard to search through all that data, it was hard to collect the data, etc. It just seems a lot more far-fetched to, to, to roll things backwards right. rather than, than moving Well, ahead. and the thing that I think will work the least well, uh, which you haven't mentioned, is to pass some laws that say that despite these technologies existing, the government can't use them, <laughs> right? I think that's just a recipe for getting a government that lies to you Right. Um, you know, even more completely than the one we already have. <laughs> and uh, it, that seems to me like if, if I were worried about tyranny, which I guess I'm not super worried about tyranny. Well, we should talk about that next. Um, but if I were, I think that's, you know, that's the that would be the thing that I would be most concerned about is, is, is uh, codifying that kind of uh, tyranny with a with a technological ban. Right. So we can we can move on well, to that. Well, I think that kind of leads into something that I like the idea, well cuz one argument you might have if you're not concerned about losing privacy is well, I don't have anything to hide. Or you don't have anything if you don't have anything to hide, it's not an issue, right? right. I'm not a terrorist, you're not a terrorist. Uh Right. Well, so and this is a this is the common argument that came up uh when there was pushback on uh 
anti-terrorism laws that came out, uh, you know, in the wake of 9-11 was uh, if you have nothing to hide, you don't need this or that civil liberty that we're rolling back in the Patriot Act or one of these Right. One of these laws. And then the people that are on the side of civil liberties will say, well, kind of everybody has something to hide. Uh, for example, I saw it right. argued by uh, Alex Tabarrok at Marginal Revolution mm-hmm. that um, essentially, you know, everybody is breaking the law constantly. Right. You know, whether it's, you know, speeding, throwing out a piece of mail that was meant for your neighbor yeah. or a prior resident, which is technically illegal. Yeah. Or yes, traffic laws are laws that everybody breaks. Yeah. Uh, drug laws are frequently broken. Very frequently broken. <laughs> Even if it's just using a, a like a prescription drug that you perhaps didn't personally get the prescription for, it doesn't have to be uh, even more uh, nefarious than that. Or you know, copyright law. So we're all potentially breaking the law, mm-hmm. which means that yes, maybe we all have something to hide, and maybe that's a problem. But I think if we all have something to hide and we're all breaking the law, that to me sounds like a problem with the laws and not a problem with surveillance. Uh, the root of that problem is clearly the law. And right. I think it's, I mean, I don't think anybody would disagree with that. If we had more sensible laws, more surveillance would be less of a problem. Um, I think there's a legitimate argument to be made about what's more realistic, fixing the laws or limiting the surveillance in the short term. I think, you know, unfortunately, our structure, the you know, structure of our government system here in the U.S. is such that fixing all of these senseless laws and getting them off the books would be a, a monumental undertaking. But I think there's going to be pressure to do that because, again, we'll have the ability with all these technologies to say, immediately give a ticket to everybody who goes five miles per hour. Right, but I think that's going to have to happen or to for Im- like a month right. before people get mad enough to realize. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of thing where if you, if you enact it, it will create a response. Where if, if everybody who actually deserved a speeding ticket got one just today, let's say, right. just one day, I think it would create political momentum to fix speeding laws. Right. Uh, and make them more realistic. Or, and the same goes for drug laws, right? If everybody was immediately punished the second they violated a drug law, uh, the number of people that would be uh, you know, dealing with uh, fines or whatever the suitable punishment was would just overrun the system immediately. Right. Well, and hey, if we punish them the way our laws are currently written, many of them we'd would be have in jail. to send so many people to jail that we would, we would completely run out of uh, places to put them. I mean, we already got we already so many people in jail, and we're not enforcing these laws anywhere near equally. We're enforcing them on about 10% of the population. So, so now it, it does occur to me where this potentially does go very wrong, which is that obviously we're not going to institute full enforcement of these laws, even though it will be technologically feasible to do so, because, yeah. yes, the response will just destroy the law framework It will completely. completely destroy the law framework, and the people who are enforcing laws know that well enough not to try it. So they'll just probably end up using the laws as just a tool mm-hmm. to go after people they want to go after. Uh, yeah, a selective tool to go after the people that they think are dangerous, which is basically what they do now. I mean, this is this is just a super now sort of prediction, but but it'll get worse, I think, or, or it has the potential to get worse. Well, already now, say if you want to go after a criminal for one thing, uh, you may be you know, catch them on a drug charge or a tax evasion that's charge. Very, very that's very common. That's a very traditional thing that happens right. a lot. Uh, but it, that may just upscale in terms of the ways that you can uh, use that power. Sure, because let's say you decide you want to target somebody. There's a, uh, let's say you're a cop and you've identified a gang member in your city and you can't get him for being in a gang because that's not in itself illegal. But you su- And you suspect him of some bad crimes, but you can't put him at any of the 
the places uh, in a way that's going to win a case. You can surveil this guy uh, almost perfectly for probably an unlimited amount of time. If you've got a little bit of probable cause and you can get a judge to go along with it, you can do pretty much, you know, pretty amazing surveillance. And then you could get him for, you know, whatever, 100 speeding violations and a drug charge and, right. uh, you know, uh, whatever else you can find. And so those are, that you can see how those are going to be powerful and tempting tools. Uh, and you can definitely see, I think, how that kind of behavior can lead pretty quickly to, you know, grudge-based police work and ultimately right. to corruption. But I, I think that that problem maybe dissolves itself because, again, if you're talking about like sort of a traditional you know, crimes like being committed on the street or out in the open or violent crimes or theft or whatever it is, as we talked about earlier, those are potentially going to be so difficult to get away with that the idea that you'd use smaller crimes to go after somebody for bigger crimes in that sort of traditional, like say going after gang sense wouldn't exist. But then you also might have, I think maybe what people are more... Well, you're not going to be likely to have you know, ubiquitous surveillance in, say, you know, gang houses uh, right. for some time. I mean, until you're in this sort of flying drone right. world, then you, then of course, that's true. Can. But I think also perhaps what I would be more worried about would be using this stuff for political purposes, not to go after mm -hmm. uh, a gang member, but to go after just uh, somebody who's opposed to you politically sure. for whatever reason, whether they're a journalist or some or an opinion maker or somebody of an opposing political party. Right. Um, I think that is or, like the or real... Or corporate espionage is sort of the same thing, yeah. but done in that world. Yeah. Right. But again, mm -hmm. it potentially will be so... Like, if you do something for political purposes, the evidence that will exist to, like, point back to you presumably also will be great. So, uh, again, if, if this stuff rolls out so that it's not completely asymmetrical, where it's, the government has all the surveillance technologies... And we have far inferior surveillance technologies. If it rolls out relatively symmetrical, um, I don't think we have too much to worry about from that. Because, you know, anytime government abuses surveillance, there should be leaks. We should be able to, you know, whether they're voluntarily being transparent or not, we should be able to spy back and expose them for what they've done. At least that would be my hope, right? Mm -hmm. That would be, I think, the best way for this to all go down. Which I think, you know, my concern would be is that the pe all the hand-wringing about, you know, losing privacy and all everybody getting upset about privacy produces a potential reactionary response where we decide, all right, we need to codify now these privacy controls, right? We need right. to... We need to architect into our systems artificial privacy Like, we need to rebuild, you know, possibly even the structure of the internet so that, you know, people can't just record you and upload your information uh, without your explicit permission, right? Right, and or, you can imagine all these tools being turned to that effect, right? You can imagine I'm shooting some video on my uh, glasses-mounted camera, and the camera picks up a face. Let's say it's your face, and you've registered with the national do not shoot my face uh, video list, and uh, the, the facial recognition software finds that, beeps, clicks at me, uh, you do not have permission to video this face, starts automatically blurring it out, Right. I have to walk up to you and say like, hey, John, can I video your face? And then maybe you decide I'm cool. So you say, okay. When you say, okay, the computer unblurs your face. You know, I mean, you could see this, you could see a world where technologically this is all possible. But we design it intentionally. We design it this yeah. way. But what does that require? It requires everybody to be running compatible systems. It requires basically for hacking to become illegal because if I override the controls, they're all of a sudden useless. <laughs> 
Um, well, and it's it, it creates it's, a lot of like conflicts of interest where like in that example you just well, gave. Well, that's another thing too. Yeah. Like you're trying, you know, you're seeing something with your own eyes and normally right. uh, that can't be taken away from you. But in this case it is. It's like, I'm imagining it's like blurred out in my own you know, glasses. Right. You know, it, it, because I don't have the rights to experience that vision in this in this way. Right. And I think also once you have those controls in place, mm -hmm. you have created a gatekeeper, right? Yeah. So whoever's like this sounds essentially like some almost like a, a platform that we're all running. We're all like or we're all subscribing to the same um Sure, we're all privacy on some compatible platform of some platform, kind. yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, who's designing that platform? Well, perhaps it's Google or some other similar company. Right. Um and not only does that give like Google essentially and Google employees the right to selectively ignore those controls when they want to and they see fit, mm -hmm. but it gives the government the ability to essentially coerce Google into doing that for them, sure. right? So all you do is you essentially continue the current system that we have that way, where by erecting these privacy controls, um, you create like a leverage point. Right for well, and really that leads to the true version of the nightmare scenario that right. all these people are worried about because that leads to a totally asymmetrical situation where your individual experience of privacy is limited, but where giant institutions like Google or the government, whichever one you're more afraid of, uh, you pick, uh, right. <laughs> has full access to all of that data, and you know whether they're trying to um, oppress political speech or kill terrorists with drones or just sell you shoes, they're using that data and you're not able to. Yes, you don't have it. So that's the, that's where I think this is a, a foolhardy path to go down because I think any way you try to architect digital space privacy, you're going to end up with problems of asymmetry because there's no way at this point uh, the government or the corporations that would be the back end here are going to let you build it such that they're limited in the same way you are. Right. That's just not... That's not realistic. No, I don't think that is either. And I think the, the incentives are just not lined up that way. No, no, no chance. Whereas the alternative vision, just to put forth what I think would, we would prefer to see, would be one where instead of a single you know, platform that we're all essentially forced to be on, that's you know, protecting our privacy in this very specific way, yeah. uh, we would have you know, essentially just like, more like what seems to be naturally evolving, which would be like a diversity of platforms, right? Um, different companies would be making different types of augmented reality classes and, mm -hmm. and, you know, there might be, you know, multiple networks that you could be subscribed to. And so you would not have the ability to say veto, exercise veto power over someone trying to record your face at a bar. So you, we would all have to let go of this privacy of anonymity that we discussed earlier. Right. Your de facto assumption is no privacy in this world. But I think ultimately that would be better because there would be no... There'd be no central gatekeeper that that government could co-opt, right? And so things would trend more symmetrical. So we, the government would be spying on, on us, we'd be spying on them. Sure. And yes, they'd probably still have in the advantage, but I don't think it would be on the scale that could happen in the, in the other scenario that we just described. Right. Well, and I do think this is the best long-term endpoint, but a society that accepts basically no de facto privacy and only intentional privacy, only, you know, encryption or the physical space equivalent, a locked drawer or whatever is the only place that you have privacy. And even that, the fact of your privacy is announced by the absence of your logging being right. on, right? So in, in a world that has no de facto privacy and only a very sort of circumscribed intentional privacy, 
uh, like we're describing, it has to be, for it not to be a, a nightmare for certain people, it has to be a much more tolerant society. Uh, you can't have a society that, for instance, tolerates you know, crimes against people for being gay and have that society because the, that'll just become a nightmare for those people. They won't be able to hide the fact that they're gay. Right. And then if, if we're tolerating violence against them, then they're going to have violence committed against them. That's going to be... Now, obviously, since that world has a lot of surveillance, if we're not tolerating that violence, then it's easier than ever to punish that violence. And uh, so a, a more tolerant society, I think, could could be... Could arise from this. Could right? arise from this. I mean, that's, that's I think, again, the, the more positive spin on this, right. the way it could go is that if we have, and I don't think we've mentioned this term yet, surveillance, where essentially everybody's spying on everybody else, right, um, leads hopefully to a more tolerant society. Uh, just because if everybody knows everybody else's business, it's sort of like like mutually assured destruction. Like, I have dirt on you, you have dirt on me. Right. Uh, I can't really judge you when you've seen what I've done, you know, last weekend. You know, hopefully things like, uh, you know, homosexuality would be more tolerated, drug use would be more tolerated, things that... Things that right now people put into that de facto privacy space for safety reasons. Right. Those are the things that I'm mostly concerned about. And I think when civil libertarians are real up in arms about this, I think that's their real concern is that, you know... Uh, intolerant people. Intolerant people with access to surveillance technology could potentially cause a lot of harm for the people they're intolerant against. And those people that they're intolerant against, their only recourse is like a justice system that works, which we maybe don't have for those people right now. And so that's, uh, that's something that I think is worth you know, thinking and, and worrying about. But I do think ultimately you can imagine a society that just comes to terms with the fact that it has to be more uh, tolerant uh, in order uh, because of this technological reality. And everything from speeding tickets to violence against gays could get more sensible <laughs> uh, we're certainly not there yet but no that's what we can maybe hope for if this goes well which it may not so I, but i think we've laid out both like the the good and and the bad sure well i this. think that's like i think it's important to just show an optimistic alternative to the nightmare scenario of no privacy because everybody thinks about it i think in this knee-jerk way of like we're, we're used to the way things work with this amount of de facto privacy so it's very disorienting to have to rethink these things. The way this is creeping up on us. I mean, and it really has caught, you know, as we well know, many politicians, for example, completely off guard. Yes. So it's like, it, there, it is a situation where the technology is is advancing faster than people are making sense of it. And right. I think that's where a lot of the unease comes from. Sure. Sure. Thanks for listening and come back next week. We're going to talk about technological unemployment. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.